For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear from some of the many voices who have a say in the future of Arizona's water policy. Author Brooke Besseson talks about documenting the plight of one of the most endangered animals on Earth in her book, Vaquita. And join some local voters as they share opinions and get better informed about the issues at a ballot brunch. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Since the summer months, the who's who of Arizona's water community have been hashing out a plan that can assure the state's water future. The federal government has set a deadline to wrap up talks by the end of the year. With the new year fast approaching and a shortage on Lake Mead looking increasingly imminent, the clock is ticking. Vanessa Barchfield looks into what this means to central Arizona's cities, tribes, and farms, and how a dispute between them might drag the whole plan down. Dan Thielander's farm is about an hour and a half from Tucson, deep in Pinal County's agricultural heartland. To get there, you pass field after field of alfalfa and cotton, a big dairy farm with hundreds of black and white cows that munch on hay as you whiz past. Then eventually, you turn onto a dirt road that leads to Thielander's place. He's from a family of farmers. They used to cultivate fields in Tempe before development swallowed up their land. Today, there's a Harley-Davidson dealership sitting where Thielander's dad used to harvest cotton. The family moved their operation to Pinal County in the 90s. So we're finishing up our final irrigations on our cotton. Our silage corn was harvested in July. It was harvested in May. In about sometime early November, we will start our cotton harvest. And next spring, we'll go into our corn planting. So farming in the desert is a year-round occupation. There are two things that make farming year-round possible here. First is sunshine. Second, water to irrigate these fields. And whether farms will have water, how much, and till when, those are huge questions facing Thielander and the other farmers in this area. That's because they rely on water from the Colorado River, and the Colorado River is in crisis. Lake Mead inches closer and closer to record low levels. Farmers in central Arizona are taking precautions in preparation for a likely water shortage declaration on Lake Mead. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation now says there's a nearly 60 percent chance that in 2020 there will be a shortage on Lake Mead. That's the reservoir that supplies water to the Central Arizona Project, or CAP. When shortage happens, the lowest priority users lose water first. And those lowest priority users are farmers in central Arizona. Farmers like Dan Thielander. We know that the hydrology on Lake Mead, you know, doesn't look good. The situation on Lake Mead is looking so grim that the state's been trying to come up with a deal to keep the reservoir from dropping to catastrophic levels. The deal is called the Drought Contingency Plan. We'll just call it the Drought Plan. Under the plan, Arizona will agree to take bigger cuts to its water allocation sooner. And in exchange, California, Nevada, and Mexico will also cut back their use of Colorado River water. The idea is to keep more water in Lake Mead for the future. 
Under the drought plan, farmers would lose all of their CAP water as soon as shortage is declared. That would force farmers to switch back to using groundwater, and Thielander says farmers would have no choice but to fallow, or stop growing, on at least one-third of the farmland in Pinal County. That's going to be a big economic hit. The labor force that won't be working as much, the seeds that we buy, the fertilizers, the tractors, those are all going to suffer. It's not just the farmers. It's the Pinal County economy, and that Pinal County economy is part of Arizona's economy. Just how much would it ripple through the state's economy? I've been told that up to $28 billion in impact across the state can be affected. That's Rusty Bowers, a Republican who served in the State House of Representatives. It's an enormous amount. In order to soften the blow to the economy and the farmers, much of the negotiating over the drought plan has been about something called ag mitigation. Ag mitigation means finding water to send to farmers in Pinal County. Now, we need to back up here and talk about why farmers like Thielander have the lowest claim to CAP water. So in 2004, President Bush signed the Arizona Water Settlements Act into law. It was mostly about settling water rights claims with Indian tribes, but the law also affected farmers in central Arizona. They agreed to give up their rights to CAP water, and in exchange, they got highly subsidized water through 2030. Then came the 2007 interim guidelines, which laid out what happens when Lake Mead falls into shortage. The guidelines devised a system of tiers of water cuts, each more stringent than the last, based on how low the water level falls in the reservoir. Under the guidelines, the farmers would have lost half their cheap CAP water in a tier one shortage. Remember, if the drought plan is passed, they'll lose all their water at that point. Our whole goal has been to keep the amount of water equal to what we would get under the 2007 guidelines. This is a system of priorities. We're not all created equal. That's Cynthia Campbell, who works on water issues for the city of Phoenix. She's on the committee that's negotiating the drought plan and has been one of the more vocal critics of some of the aspects of ag mitigation. The cities and the tribes have contracts that they've been paying for for many, many, many years so they could have higher priority water. Agriculture used to have those contracts, too, and they couldn't afford them, and they sold them. For the past few months of water talks, it seemed like the farmers would get a fixed amount of water for a set number of years. But then at a meeting last month, the whole thing started to unravel. That's because it seemed to some participants like the farms would be better off with this drought plan than they would if there was no drought plan at all. Now, the amount of cheap water that's available to farmers is from a category called excess water. It's basically what's left over in CAP's allocation of Colorado River water after all the cities and tribes have made their water orders. And that amount of excess water dropped substantially this year as high-priority users ordered more than they had in previous years. Paul Orm's a lawyer who represents Pinal County farmers. Why were those orders made all of a sudden in 2019? And what's most of that extra water going to be used for? Supporters of the ag community say cities and tribes are storing that water away for the future. Dan Thielander again. You know, it's very, very frustrating that we're going to be going out of business while other entities are storing water. The cities say it's their right and, in fact, their responsibility to plan for the future by storing water. Here's Cynthia Campbell again with the city of Phoenix. For almost 40 years, 
Arizona has had a Groundwater Management Act where we have tried and worked towards maintaining safe yield. That is, making sure that we're putting as much water into the ground as we take out. Our water storage is part of that regulatory program and that has kept the state of Arizona largely sustainable and able to sustain the growth that we've seen to date. Now, just to be clear, Tucson's water is in the highest priority pool. We'll only lose a small percentage of water under the drought plan if a third tier shortage happens. But there's a medium priority pool that some cities and tribes get water from. And under the drought plan, they'd stand to lose water when first and second tier shortages come. More than one third of the water supply for the Gila River Indian community is in that pool. The tribe's chief executive, Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis, says the drought talks have been focused mostly on farmers rather than what other users stand to lose, including his tribe. We're going to be taking uh, massive cuts is what, what uh, my, my team is calculating right now. So th that would have a, <clears throat> a drastic effect on the community's water supplies. He made that comment to the drought planning meeting last month. At that same meeting, people who support farmers were making the case for ag mitigation. And one argument is not so much economic as it is historic. Arizona would not exist as it does today without the contributions of farmers for 150 years. That's the Arizona Farm Bureau's president, Stephanie Smallhouse. That history argument didn't really fly with Governor Lewis. You know, I think we sell ourselves short. When we talk about 150 years, the autumn, who we trace ourselves to the Hoogam civilization, uh, we've been farming for over a thousand years. There are some sad chapters to this history as well. We talk about a line of agriculture, and especially autumn agriculture. And the only time that that was disrupted was when our water was taken away from us. Lewis's ancestors used to rely on the Gila River, but damming and diversions of that river upstream mean that basically it's now dry. Remember the 2004 settlement that gave cheap water to farmers in Pinal County? It also granted CAP water rights to the Gila River Indian community. Today, the tribe has the largest single allocation of water in central Arizona. And because Lewis says his responsibility is to protect that, he is unable to support the drought plan with ag mitigation as it was proposed most recently. Here's lawmaker Rusty Bowers. I certainly don't like the condition that they have thrown down. I wonder what its genesis is. How, how far does vengeance go? I don't know. Lewis doesn't see this as vengeance. We are protecting what is ours, rightfully, under federal law. He says he sent a new proposal, and now they're working through the details. Committee members have to finish by the end of the year. Back on Dan Thielander's farm, he says he and his neighbors are not asking for a permanent supply of water. They just want the state to fulfill the promise it made to them that they'd get CAP water through 2030. He knows that the future will look very different for this farm. What do you think the area that we see in front of us will look like in two decades, let's say? I think where we're standing now will probably be developed. There will probably be some industry, hopefully, and whatever. But uh, yeah, I think it will continue to be somewhat of a bedroom community, I would think, for Phoenix area. You know, when you think of the long term like that. That's the Arizona Daily Star's Tony Davis. We reported the story together. For me, it puts a little different spin or view of the heated controversies of today, you know, uh, not for either side. It's just like, well, this seems really hot now, but in 20 years, it's all going to be all subdivisions anyway. 
But Tony, one thing I can tell you in 20 years, yeah. everybody will still be fighting over water. Yeah. <laughs> it's been that way as long as I've been alive. And though the fight will go on long into the future, this chapter of it is far from over. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. That story featured music from the band Melodium, and it was reported in collaboration with the Arizona Daily Star. You can find the companion article in this Sunday's edition. Vaquita means little cow, an endearing name for one of the shyest and least known species of ocean mammal. Part of the reason for the animal's low profile is that they're found only one place on Earth, in the Sea of Cortez, and their numbers are currently hovering in the low double digits. That fact alone would signal the end of the road for most species. But author Brooke Bessesen says there's still a chance for the vaquita to bounce back, and her latest book highlights the efforts by a range of concerned citizens on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border who are struggling to give these creatures a fighting chance. Bessesen has been working and writing in the fields of biology and ecology for more than three decades, but the hands-on research that she did to write Vaquita was a unique journey. So I selected this passage uh, from the prologue because I feel like it is representative of my journey in researching vaquita, and perhaps even the journey of trying it all to save a species. Just don't stop, I told myself, as my Prius skidded sideways through a maze of ragged shrubs. Sliding in the sand like a stunt driver, I pressed on the gas pedal and held fast to the steering wheel. If my car bogged in the sediment, if it got stuck, I would be sitting lost in a remote patch of Mexican desert, alone and miles from help. I had been traveling a paved thoroughfare that promised a highway connection above the northern tip of the Gulf of California when my cell's navigation system failed me. The self-assured Siri had indicated a left turn some miles back, but I had found no such road to take. Soon my path had petered to dirt and then narrowed to trail before dead-ending in a lonely thicket of brush. When navigating into remote terrain and foraging into the unknown, there are always uncertainties, dangers even. I was on my first trip into Mexico to learn about vaquitas, and my plans were already off course. Perhaps I should have turned back. Instead, I crossed a rickety irrigation bridge and jolted along a washboard canal road in search of a way forward. Now, I was snaking wildly across the dry riverbed of the Rio Colorado, fishtailing through several inches of silt, dodging thorny shrubs, pushing the gas, and praying that luck would prevail. The journey to tell this story took you to Mexico to be a part of the fishing community there. Who did you find to be your guide into that community and to help you delve into this situation? I had many wonderful guides, but the most important of those uh, for me was a, a man named Gustavo Cardenas, and he is a scientist working on the acoustic science of vaquitas, which is very fascinating science. He is uh, a man who came from Ensenada to meet me when I made my first trip down to the Gulf of California to San Felipe. And he uh, stayed by my side and answered every question and helped me navigate the terrain from start to finish, along which came many other guiding lights who were more than generous in sharing their stories and their opinions and their ideas and their knowledge so that I could formulate this book. 
if it's not through natural predation and it's not through fishing for the vaquita as a species, what is the greatest threat to their existence? Vaquitas are an innocent victim. They are bycatch. Bycatch is the incidental capture of non-target species in fishing. So when you go out and you set gill nets, they usually have a mesh size designed to fit a particular species. So if you can imagine the square, the open hole in the nets is larger for a shark, for example, and smaller, tiny for a shrimp, for example. But no matter the mesh size, Gill nets catch all kinds of animals, whales and dolphins and obviously vaquitas. Originally, the majority of the loss of the vaquita population was in commercial gill nets. Gill nets used for shrimp and, and fish, mostly exported to us here in the United States. In 2012, however, the gill nets began hitting the water uh, set by poachers for a critically endangered fish called totuaba. Now, totuaba is the largest drumfish in the world, and historically, this animal swam in schools by the hundreds that roiled the seas. They grew to uh, almost seven feet long and 300 pounds. So these enormous totuaba um, were hunted through the years, both commercially and then illegally after uh, 1975 when the fish was listed as endangered. After it left the legal fishery, which was used for meat, again, mostly exported to the United States, it was still hunted occasionally for what's called a swim bladder, which is an, a buoyancy organ that helps a fish go up and down in the water. In 2012, that business of poaching just got lit on fire. And suddenly there were poachers throwing nets into the water to catch totuabas to carve out these swim bladders and sell them on the black market through the Mexican cartels into the United States and caught up with the Chinese mafia who sell them in China as part of a pseudo-medicinal soup, if you will. When these bladders hit the black market, they became worth so much money that we talk sometimes about incentivizing fishermen to do the right thing for vaquita. It's really difficult to do that when these fishermen, uh, a, a pound of shrimp, for example, of, of legally caught shrimp is worth about $9 to a fisherman. And a pound of totuaba bladder is worth $4,000. What is the latest estimate as to the total population of vaquita in the Sea of Cortez? There has not been a current um, population estimate released, but I will say that in uh, 2016, that is two years ago, the estimate was less than 30. And the rate of decline in the last few years has been upwards of 50%. People who are directly involved in the, in the programs to save Vaquita worry about having an official estimate coming out because there's concerns that people will pull up stakes. The people will say, oh, this is it's a lost cause. But until there are no vaquitas on this planet, this is not a lost cause. While there are even a few left, we must, we must fight for them. And an important note to this is that anybody who's hearing this and saying, oh, well, you know, with only a few left, their genetics have to be shot. There's no chance of saving a species with those that few number left. That is not true. Vaquita happens to be a, an animal that has lived in rarity for many, many years. And that means that scientifically, they have purged their lethal alleles. I know that sounds like a lot of words, but it's basically to say that their genetics are, are designed 
to small numbers. And for that reason, they have much more power to recover than another kind of species that would be have been more prolific. My guest was Brooke Bessesen, author of Vaquita, published by Island Press. She'll be hosting a webinar about the plight of the vaquita and how you can help next Thursday, November 8th, from 1 to 2 p.m. local time. We have a link to details and registration on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. We've all heard about early bird specials and happy hours, but what about a ballot brunch? Well, it has to do with next week's midterm election, and it's an opportunity for neighbors to share more than the food that's on the table. Tony Paniagua visited a recent Sunday gathering to let us know how it works. Ballot brunch. I had never heard of it, so I was curious when I received the email invitation from Carol Varney. I'm the executive director at the Arts Foundation for Tucson in Southern Arizona. Varney had included me on a list of Tucson residents she had met in recent months. I inquire about the event and she explains the concept. It sounds intriguing, so I ask her for permission to do a story for Arizona Spotlight. She says yes, and so do her house guests once they've gathered. So I basically invited, I want to say maybe I invited 40 people, I'm not sure. I didn't even know some of them, but they were on lists that friends had sent me. And um, collectively, I think we had maybe 15 people here today. After getting food and drinks, meeting other people, and engaging in conversation, Varney begins. So thank you all for coming. Uh, a ballot brunch is not really a thing. It's just a thing I made up. Varney is a relatively recent arrival to Arizona. She moved to Tucson for her new job last year after living in California for two decades. That's where she started the pre-election tradition. A few years ago in San Francisco, the ballot was about truly 40, I counted it the other day, 40 propositions and things to vote on. So many things. And there were certain things that just made no sense to me. And I thought, I need brains in the room to help me understand the nuance to these various propositions. And so I had a bunch of people over. We had brunch. We discussed, I found that in fact, there wasn't huge division, but there was a lot of nuance that I didn't get and we didn't all agree on all of them. So it was very informative to me. And now that I've moved to Arizona, I thought I wanna to try to do the same thing to just learn more about what's happening locally and statewide and truly selfishly get all of your great brains in the room to help me understand what's happening. So thank you all for coming. The concept is simple. Enjoy the food and company while learning about the candidates and issues. The internet and those voter information guides you've probably received in the mail are helpful. Varney has also taped a large piece of paper on a wall that everyone can see. She compiles a list of the election items and a volunteer reads the details. Proposition 127 is a constitutional amendment amending Article 15 of the Constitution of Arizona to require electricity providers to generate at least 50% of their annual sales of electricity from renewable energy sources. Each person is welcome to contribute to the conversation based on their knowledge, experience, or ideas. When they're finished, Varney checks off the item before moving on to the next subject. The people are civil. No one yells or insults the other guests. I got an email from Carol and I was thrilled. Ken Kay is the CEO of a national education group and has lived in Tucson since 2004. As soon as I got the invitation, I sent, sent it to my wife saying, I think we should do this. And she had already, the, the, the message is crossed. She had sent me an information, <laughs> an email saying, I think we should do this. So we, I, by the time the emails crossed, we were committed. 
I think it's a great idea to uh, take your citizenship seriously enough that you actually give some thought to what you're doing and, and learn from other people who are struggling through the same material. Corin Manning is one of the other guests. It's new to me, but I love the concept. It's social, it brings people together, just sort of informally to chat, and you get to hear different people's views on an issue, different perspectives. She recently returned to Tucson with her partner after being away for more than a decade. So I'm sort of familiar with some of the local politics, local issues, but I wanted to learn more about the issues, kind of reacquaint myself with what's going on today in Tucson. Um, I have a lot to learn about some of the candidates, issues on the ballot and things like that. I want to make sure that I'm informed before I go to the booth or send in my ballot. My name is Rebecca Gutierrez and I'm a professor at the University of Sonora at the Foreign Languages Department. Rebecca Gutierrez is a Mexican citizen who lives in Hermosillo and does not vote in U.S. elections. But I've known her for several years, and since she was visiting Tucson that weekend anyway, I asked her if she wants to attend. Yeah, it was very informative and interesting. Mexicans elected a new president in July, and he'll be sworn into office on December 1st, so elections are fresh on their minds. And since many of our southern neighbors also pay attention to politics in the U.S., Gutierrez appreciates the different systems and perspectives. What I take back is I never talk about certain politicians with my students, but I talk about how important it is to have the right to vote and how they shouldn't take it for granted given the, you know, the current political environment around the world. So this is something that I think we should encourage anywhere. Again, Ken Kay, the CEO of the education company. It's like a pre-election day coffee clutch, right? It was just, it's lovely. Do you think ballot brunch is going to become a thing? I hope so. I think it's, I think it's great. I'm not sure. I feel a little mixed about having too many ballot propositions. So I wouldn't want to encourage the, the, the ballot initiative people by saying, oh my God, there are going to be all these brunches. We might as well put more propositions on the ballot. <laughs> So whether it's ballot brunch, electoral lunch, or decision dinner, the guests say it's a great way to spend some time. So does host Carol Varney. I'm extremely happy with the turnout and the conversations. I definitely learned so much more than I ever would have truly from just reading the pamphlets that have come in the mail or talking with people who, who come to the door. The brunch started at 10 in the morning and wraps up about three hours later. Thank you very much. Yeah. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Don't forget, Election Day is Tuesday, November 6th, so if you haven't voted early, that's your opportunity. We'll be bringing you complete coverage of the election results here at Arizona Public Media. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.